right, welcome back to Formate Arbitration. And today we're going to do the anatomy of a removal. I told you that I had a couple of removals that I just did in arbitration. Uh, both of them, JB was the formal step A. Uh, I already got the decision back on one. And so we're going to go from the very beginning, what happened, the process that we went through, the arguments that we made. I'm going to read the arbitrator's decision. He's already given that decision back. I told you, win or lose, we're going to talk about it, okay? So it was a very difficult arbitration. Uh, it was a very difficult removal. Uh, we made all, a lot of the things that I covered in my previous episodes about the charge, about 16.8, 16.10, about criminal statutes. Just about everything that I've ever covered was in this case. We argued everything. <laughs> it, it was, uh, you talking about arrows in a quiver? Every arrow that we could shoot, we shot in this case. Uh, labor, they always record it on their phone. Uh, so I have my closing argument, uh, and I'm going to play that on here. So you can hear a closing argument that I did where I tried to cover all the bases on that. So it should be a very interesting episode, a uh, lot to talk about. Before that, uh, I know that uh, some people are talking about helping out in Hawaii with uh, certain things. I'll put up on From 8 Arbitration, uh, the Facebook page, also from 8arbitration.com, where we can send items that are, have been requested. Uh, what I'm going to do here with uh, From 8 Arbitration is, I told you that all the, the money that I collected off of shirts, I'm going to put to MDA. I'm going to send it over there to them. To, to our brothers and sisters over there that have lost everything in Hawaii. Uh, a lot of people have reached out to me talking about that, uh, saying that that would be a good gesture. I agree with that. I agree with that. So every penny that I have made off of shirts, off of selling shirts, every penny I'm going to send over there. We're going to figure out where to send it. But I'm not going to do that until the end of this month. And what I would like to do is I'd like to challenge national I'd like to challenge National and all the business agents, every region, to match what I put in penny for penny. Whatever I put in, I want the business agents and National to match that dollar amount penny for penny. Uh, I, it may be four. I don't know how much I've collected off of the shirts because I don't deal with that. Jeremy McCall deals with that. So I'll get with him. And at the end of this month, there'll be a figure, whatever that figure is, $400, $4,000, I don't know. Whatever that figure is, I'd like to challenge every region, every business agent to match that dollar for dollar, penny for penny, and national. I'd like for national to match that. Now, I don't know how y'all do that as far as bylaws and constitution and all that shit. Get around it. Uh, so whatever I contribute based off of these shirt sales I want every region and national to match that penny for penny, dollar for dollar. How's that sound? I think that's a great idea. And don't come up with some funky-ass excuse we can't do it because of something. If you want to do it, you'll find a way to do it. We've got people over there that are hurting. Uh, I know that my branch has sent several large boxes of, of uniforms. We're still doing that. Uh, my station is doing that. Uh, we've sent several boxes from my station over there as far as uniforms are concerned. Like I said, I'll put that information up. Uh, it's time to dig down and, and help our brothers and sisters, right, that have been devastated. And so that's exactly what we're going to do, and I think that will be a good cause to send that money to from those shirts. 
Uh, and then after that, we, again, well, the, the shirts are doing well. <laughs> They're doing well. Better than I had thought that they would do. But if there's an incentive to buy one, you can put it on your dog or your cat. I don't care. But, you know, buy shirts. Let's raise up this money, whatever it is. Let's raise up this total, and we'll send that over there to our brothers and sisters in Hawaii, okay, and, and help them out as much as we possibly can. Uh a lot of things are coming in still to me about management and what they're doing. Uh, this, the hour office time is still going crazy. I don't understand that. The 22-minute load time is still going crazy. Somebody sent me this uh, this past week, and it was from uh, management. And this is what it said. This was an input sending this out to managers and supervisors. It says, focus on 1838s, loading observations, getting them out under 22 minutes. So he's saying, focus on that. Now, this was sent out this week, this past week. This wasn't six months ago. This was this past week, getting them out under 22 minutes. Remember, 10 seconds per package to scan and load it. I guess they're talking about the load feature. 10 seconds. Finish in all caps. Finish all IMSOT observations and try to get to LTM and DPM. They're still doing this across this country with a 22-minute load time. They're still doing that. Focus on it. Focus on the 22 minutes. Still doing that. Had another come out. It says, new manager says there's no eight-hour no guarantee and carriers have only five minutes of PM office time. That was this week. New manager says there's no eight-hour guarantee and carriers have only five minutes of PM office time. This shit's going on nationwide. The amount of ignorance that's going on nationwide with, the, with postal management is unlike anything I've ever seen. The amount of stupidity that's coming out right now with postal management is unlike anything I've ever seen. And do you know who I blame for that? I blame the union for that. I blame the union for that. This 22-minute load time should have never been a thing. But we still have carriers being bullied and badgered because of 22-minute load time. We still have carriers being bullied because of one-hour office time. They sent me a checklist that they had found on a supervisor's desk. It has this long checklist. Carriers getting out from out of the office under 60 minutes? Why not? Carriers loading their vehicles in this amount of time? Why not? Are we doing this? Are we out there watching? Are we out there talking? Are we out there doing this? Are carriers talking to each other while they're loading? Why are they not being talked about about talking while they're loading? The amount of badgering and bullying that's going on in this country because of these falsified and fictitious and made-up standards because of these memos is absolutely astonishing. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And the only ones we can blame for is that. Do you know why? Because we have not educated ourselves. Remember way back when, when I talked about the memos? When I said we should have gotten ahead of that? Before the memos even came out, we should have gotten ahead of that and educated our people that these are not new standards. These are not new standards. Nation, country, city carry craft, these are not new standards so if management comes out and they says these are standards, everybody is educated. Everybody on the workroom floor is educated. Remember when I said that way back when, when I just read the whole damn 1983 on here? All that time ago, 
And it's still going on today. Do you know why? Because we as a union have failed our city letter carriers. The business agents have failed the city letter carrier by not educating those on the workroom floor. That's what I was talking about last week. When I become business agent, priority one is making sure there's an avenue for every city letter carrier to be educated. Whatever that has to be, I'm going to make sure that every city letter carrier is educated. I don't care if it's a station with two routes in it. I'll go there personally and educate them myself. Because there's nothing more tragic than this shit going on right now. And the, and the city letter carrier is not educated enough to know how to defeat that. There's nothing more tragic than an uneducated letter carrier that is uneducated but because the business agent's office has failed to do their job. And that's what's going on in this country. The business agent's office has failed the city letter carrier craft. When we still have impus talking about make sure the 22-minute load time, this shit should have been addressed seven months ago. That should have been ended seven, eight months ago. It should have been done with. We still have dumbass impus talking about 22-minute load time. Can y'all believe that shit? We still have our office times. We're still dealing with our office times. That shit should have been dealt with seven, eight months ago. But because our business agents have failed in their jobs, as far as educating the city letter carrier craft, this is what happens. And we have a, a craft right now that is stressed out beyond imagination. Stressed out beyond imagination. They are being watched they're being talked about on stationary events. That's our fault. They're being pressured as far as one-hour office time. That's our fault. They're being stressed out about 22-minute load time. That's our fault. We have carriers that are succumbing to the heat. And management has falsified hip training. And we have business agents' offices, branch presidents, B-team saying, cease and desist, make sure you do the training. That's our fault. We had another carrier die because of heat in Chino, California. Another carrier died from the heat in Chino, California. Nothing from our leaders about it. Nothing from our president about it. We have failed as a union as far as information and as far as education. And that's a promise that I make to you when I become business agent is that shit, those days are over with. Those days are over with. The days of hobnobbing with each other up at these national level meetings and shit, that's done. That's over with. We're going to educate as a nation. We're going to educate every city letter care in this country. That's a promise that I make to you. Every city letter carrier will be, will be educated. We will get rid of those that fail to educate. We will vote those out that fail to educate. Uh, we have a lame duck president right now whose time is, his days are numbered. He will be gone. Uh, I'll make sure that. We have to have a leader right now, and we don't have that. Uh, a lot of people have reached out to me about the charges, my thoughts, I'm not going to give my thoughts on the charges. That, those, that investigation will, will be coming to a close here soon. But this is what will happen. And I know this will happen. Is that you have those 
that are so sucked up. They're like those those creatures that are on the bottom of on the belly of a shark. You know, they just suck on them and just let them float them around. That's all they do is just suck on them and let them just swim around with them. They don't do anything but suck on them. We have a lot of people that are like that with our national level right now. They just suck on them. They don't care what they do. They're just going to suck on them and just let them carry them around. They're worthless individuals. Uh, they're in a the position now. They finally made it as business agent or at the national level. They finally made it there. So they're just going to suck on it all day long and let national just float them around. Business agents just suck on it all day long. Let them just float them around. They don't have to do anything else. We're going to get rid of those individuals, I promise you. But watch what happens. If the charges are substantiated, if the charges are substantiated, and I don't know whether they will be or not, but if the charges are substantiated, watch and see if this don't happen. At the end of the investigation, when the council votes to determine whether a substantial charge exists, and that's what they'll do, when the investigation is over, the council will get together and they'll determine whether a substantial charge exists, okay? When that happens, or at the conclusion of a hearing, someone on that council will stand up and make a motion that the council votes by secret ballot. Wait and see. Wait and see. Somebody from that council will stand up and make a motion that the votes be, be counted by secret ballot. Wait and see. I know how this works, man. I know how this works. They suck on each other up there. You'll never get rid of people who have no business being in their position because you have too many people that suck on each other up there at that level. You'll have somebody stand up and make a motion. I, I swear to God, you'll have somebody make a motion that they, the votes should be counted by secret ballot. You know why? Because cockroaches want to be hidden in the dark, right? Cockroaches want to stay in the dark. That's where cockroaches are, in the dark. You want a vote to be had by secret ballot. Why? So that nobody knows how you voted. <laughs> so that your constituents can't question you on how you voted. So that your people can't say, hey, look, this charge right here that was found to be valid on this gentleman whose career was almost ruined, whose marriage was almost lost because of something that was said to him that was a lie. Why did you vote against that guy? Why did you vote for this one over here who said it? Why did you vote like that? Because I've got a problem with that. Why did you vote for this individual here who called this female a female dog? Why did you vote for him? And you saw that the charge was valid where he called a female a female dog. Why would you vote for him and say, hey, that doesn't require you losing your job. That doesn't show that your position as a president should be put in jeopardy. Why did you vote like that? Like I said, I don't know whether the charges are valid or not. Now, one, I do, but uh, I don't know whether they're valid or not. But you have somebody stand up and say, we need to do it by secret ballot. Watch out for those. Watch out for those people. Those are cockroaches in the dark. That's what that is. Those are cockroaches in the dark. Those are people that suck on the NALC. And they suck on them because they don't want to do what we do down here. They don't want to go back to delivering mail because they're incapable of doing that. They're like management. Once management gets into management, they're incapable of coming back doing our job. So they will suck on the NALC. 
you got business agents that will suck on the NLC for the rest of their careers and not do a damn thing. So watch and see. I don't know, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that somebody will get up and say, we need to do this by secret ballot because we're chicken shits. We're cowards. And so we need to do it by secret ballot so nobody will know how I voted, that I'm one of those that suck on the NLC. We need to do it by secret ballot so nobody will know that I'm over here in the shadows sucking on the NLC. Do what's right by the city letter carrier. And I said that several months ago. Whatever you do, do what's right by the city letter carrier, and you'll never be wrong. You'll never be wrong. You work for us. We don't work for you. You work for us down here. We pay your salary. And if you're too big of a chicken shit to vote where people can see it, you don't need to be where you're at. You don't need to be in that position. If you're too big of a punk-ass coward to vote where people can see, you need to bring your punk ass back down to delivering mail. Okay? Back down to delivering mail. Let somebody that's got a backbone be in your position. Do that. Let somebody that's got a backbone be in your position. We've got too many, too many cowards running this union right now. Too many cowards that do nothing all day but suck on the NLC. Too many people in positions of power that couldn't bust a damn grape right now in this union. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. The old days of the rebel rousers, the the hellions, those days are gone, but they're coming back. <laughs> I promise you that they're coming back. The city letter care is educating themselves. The shop stewards are educating themselves. They're going to be voting branch presidents out that don't do a fucking thing. I hear it all the fucking time. They're going to be voting region uh, business agents out that don't do a damn thing. I hear that all the time. We're going to be getting new leadership in our union. That is a foregone conclusion. This union is fixing to bust out like gangbusters again with strong leadership at national, strong leadership at the business agent level, strong leadership at the branch president level. Shop stewards will be elected that are going to represent their carriers and not the good old boy system. Okay? Those days are gone. Those days are gone. We're fixing to get ass kickers back in positions of leadership that's what we're going to do uh, we don't have that we got murmurs and whispers <laughs> we got people that have the energy of a snail running this union but those days are fixing to be over uh, everybody keep your heads up we're going to get people in positions that are going to start raising hell again in this union we've got uh business agents that should be lions that that are looking that are looking for things to go devour that's what we need to have now we do have some that are like that we do have some that are like that but we've got a lot we've got a lot that are lambs they're not lions they're lambs and and so all of the business agents will be lions on this next election We'll make sure that that we start that. Remember long ago when I talked about starting a ground roots uprising? That's what we're going to do 
It'll start with this podcast, and we're going to educate members on who to vote for, who to vote the fuck out, make sure that we have lions in those positions so that they are looking on who to devour. Any supervisor or manager that is causing a problem, we will devour them. That's how I'm going to be when I'm business agent. Any manager or supervisor in this region that causing a problem, I will devour them. Okay? Their, their term will be short-lived. I will have a team that I will send in that are experts at the joint statement. Every shop steward in this region will be experts at the joint statement, and they will know how to attack the joint statement, and they will know how to file a joint statement Every single shop steward in this region will be an expert on the joint statement. Everyone, every state, every district will have a team that will go in and bust the shit out of management that chooses to be bullies, that chooses to intimidate, harass. They will be miserable because I will be in there all the time. District managers will be put on notice that that shit will not be tolerated. We will educate more than any other region in Region 8. I'm sick of it, man. I am sick to fucking death about this shit cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's what these regions are doing. When they blackballed me, that's when I decided, motherfucker, you going to blackball me? I'll take your fucking job. I'll come take your fucking job. You blackball that bitch. I'm going to take your fucking job. So you can either retire or go back. You can't put anybody in that position that will beat me. I decided that long ago. There is a new fucking day in Region 8. I promise you that. We are going to be educated hellraisers in this region. We are going to take things back to arbitration. All these funky ass... Pre-arb sessions, I know there's an MDOC, but all this shit where we're just wholesaling shit, gone. Those days are gone. Managers that sit here and bully people, done. Supervisors that come in here and bully, done. Talk about 22-minute load time, over with. Our office time, educating, that's done. I'm serious, man. This shit pisses me the fuck off to see how far our union has fallen. It pisses me the fuck off. You got... That you got people that are so far up national's ass across this country. It's going to take a fucking crane to pull them out. They, they will rather suck NLC's ass than protect the city letter carrier. It's a crying shame. But those days are coming to an end. I promise you that. Those days are coming to an end. I promise you that. We're going to be more educated than at any time in the history of this union. And I make a promise to that. I, I'm going to have people just set loose on this region, man. If there's a problem area, that motherfucker ain't going to be a problem for long. You got problem management, those motherfuckers ain't going to be a problem for long. I'm going to have fucking warriors going into arbitration too. I'm going to have the elites of the fucking elite going into arbitration every single time. I don't give a fuck if I like the person or not. If they're the best, them motherfuckers are going into arbitration and win me a fucking case. That's what you're going to do. You're going to blackball me and you're going to do the same to JB? 
That motherfucker is the future of this union. And you're going to tell him he, ain't, he can't go train because of me? You're sitting in my seat, baby. <laughs> you're sitting in my seat. Anyway, that's just something that's been weighing on me, especially with this shit still coming down about the 22-minute office time. That just fires my ass up that I have carriers still being stressed out because of something we did. I told you, the only thing I care about is the city letter carrier. That's it. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about a fucking position. I'm going to take the position because I can. I'm going to take the position, but I'm going to take the position because I love the city letter carrier. That's why. I'm going to take the fucking position because I love the city letter carrier. Period. I'm not going to take it for the money. I'm not going to take it for the retirement. I'm going to take it because I'm sick of seeing the city letter care run the fuck over and our union not doing a fucking thing about it. This 22-minute load time should have been shut down months ago. It, first off, it shouldn't have been put on a memo. That's a rookie-ass mistake. That's somebody who hadn't worked on this workroom floor long enough to understand the bullshit we have to deal with. I've been on this fucking workroom floor 29 years. I know, and I will not forget what we have to deal with every fucking day. You going to talk about falsifying hip training? Baby, I'm going to tell my B team that motherfucker's going to hearing. Period. And here's how we're going to build the case file. And here's the grievance starter that we're going to use. Here's what you're going to request for it. And here's the remedy you're going to request. That's coming straight from the business agent's office. If National says don't do it, fuck you. Fuck you. You're not going to tell me how to run my fucking region. You chicken shit motherfuckers up there ain't done a fucking thing for the city letter carrier. You damn sure ain't going to come down here and try to tell me how to run my fucking region. I'm building warriors down here in region eight, motherfucker. So stay up there in your fucking seat. Sip on your fucking cognac and leave me the fuck alone. I, hey, man, I am sick and fucking tired of the city letter carrier being trampled by both fucking sides. Both fucking sides. People say, well, you don't need to know what we're asking for in collective bargaining. Why? Why do I need to know? I don't need to know how you're trying to get it. I don't need to know the documentation you're, you're requesting to try to get it. Why is everything such a fucking secret? You got people say, well, they'll let you know when it's over. I don't want to know when it's over. I'm paying your fucking dues, man. I'm paying your fucking salary. You want to tell me how much you're going to request? What we're looking for? What we're looking at? I tell you, man, <laughs> I've had it. I've had it. Really. <laughs> We're putting warriors back in positions, baby. We're putting warriors back in positions. Y'all hang your head up. Right? Pick your heads up, man. Push your shoulders back. Walk into these motherfucking offices knowing that the NLC, we're coming back. We're coming back. These motherfucking managers that are bitches and acting like motherfuckers on the floor, done. Keep your heads up. We'll be here shortly. It'll be three more years before we can get some of these motherfuckers gone. But it's happening. Hang on. Hang on. We're coming. We're coming. And when we get there, we're going to get there with bad fucking intention. I promise you that. I'm going to be fucking reaping the whirlwind on these motherfuckers in this region for the shit they've done to my city letter carriers. Man, I am bringing the fucking hurricane on these motherfuckers. Trust that. 
Business agents who aren't like that, get your fucking ass out of that office, man, and go back to doing something or take your punk ass into management. The city letter care is getting trampled right now, man. We have cares dying in the fucking yard still. And I can't hear a fucking peep from anybody at National sitting there talking all quiet and shit about, well, we need to get this data so that we can make a good spreadsheet and show that to management, you know, that, hey, uh, look, it looks like the training wasn't completed. Need What in the fuck is wrong with you, man? Don't worry about it, baby. <laughs> Don't worry. Your title is temporary. Temporary. I want somebody up there that's going to fucking splinter some shit, man, and you ain't it. We have got to change the course of this union, and we will. We will. I promise you that it's coming. It's coming. It's going to start with me. You know, I told you I'm not interested in anything, and I fuck that. <laughs> fuck that. Fuck that. Man, I'm sick and tired of seeing my people hurt. I told y'all from the very beginning, the only thing I care about is a city letter care. You talking about my love, my love and my passion, city letter care, nothing else, nothing. I have people that I love at national. Now, don't get me wrong. I've got people up there that I would take to fucking battle with me. I've told their names before. I would take to fucking battle with me. The rest of them, fuck them, fuck them. I'm serious. My love, city letter care. It will always be city letter care. My love is not the dollar. If my love is the dollar, I'd be saying, hey, donate money to me. Y'all give me some money for this podcast. I'm spending all this money. Send me some money. I'm not doing that because it ain't my fucking love, man. My love, city letter carriers. It will always be city letter carriers. So when I hear things like what's still going on, it pisses me the fuck off, man. I had an EEO. I helped a gentleman out this past week. It was uh, Friday. And I don't do EEOs, so don't message me about doing EEOs, but this is a friend of mine. And he said, hey, man, these man this manager is a straight asshole. He's after me. He's after me. What's happened? Well, I put in these restrictions. I said, all right, look, just send me everything you've got. I'll put something together for you. And, you know, when it comes time, we'll talk about it on this EEO. He said, I'm telling you, this manager is the worst I've ever seen. I said, that's fine. That's fine. I said, we'll be all right. So Friday comes, the EO starts, and they talk to this guy, and he gets overcome with emotion, okay? He gets overcome with emotion, and he's like, you know, well, Corey's going to represent me, and he knows everything. He can't speak. He's overcome with emotion because of the things that has happened to him because of this manager, right? Because of this asshole. He's so distraught, he can't speak. So the mediator, he comes to me, Mr. Walton, you want to take, I said, yeah, I'll talk to you. I said, this is what's happened. I said, this man's been targeted because of his <laughs> restrictions and his restrictions are based off of his disability. And he's been, he's been targeted clearly. So I start going down a timeline. The mediator says, hang on just a second. I'm going to give the manager, the asshole manager, an opportunity to address each one as you go. Cause it sounds like you might have a timeline. I said, I do. So the manager gets on there and he's like, I'm not here to talk about discipline. I thought I was talking about, we were going to talk about how I'm targeting this guy because of a so-called uh, disability. I thought that was just being a straight ass, you know. So the mediator came back to me and I said, you know, I appreciate you, my friend. I said, but I really don't care what you think. I said, I'm not here because of what you think. 
And I don't care what you think. I said, I'm here because of this gentleman here, the one that you've targeted. And part of that, showing that, is the discipline that has come up on this man because of you. So this guy starts trying to interrupt me. I'm not, I said, hold up, man, don't you ever interrupt me. I don't know who you think I am, but you will not interrupt me. I said, I don't work for you, baby. I said, don't ever interrupt me. You hear me? And he got up and left. He got up and walked out. I'm not going to be talked to like this. I guess I've walked out. So the mediator says, well, I said, well, I think we see where the problem is. I said, Mr. So-and-so, I said, I apologize that you have to work in this kind of environment. But it's obvious what the problem is in this station. You've got a manager that has chosen to be a bully and a child. I said, he threw a little temper tantrum and walked out. And the attorney for them says, please go get him back. Dude wouldn't come back. He said, I'm done. This is how you go after these motherfuckers, man. They're bullies. And how do you do to a bully? You kick them in the fucking face. That's what you do. Not literally. Don't do that. But <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You go after them. In my region, we're going after them. You want to be a bully? Take this team right here. Team of fucking experts. Take these motherfuckers right here. <laughs> that's what I'm going to call them, the motherfuckers. Send them in there. Bully them, I dare you. Because these are the elite of the elites right here. And we're going into every single station that has a bully as a supervisor or manager, and we will stay there until that motherfucker's gone. I'm sick and tired of it, folks. Sick and fucking tired of it, man. I am. This union was once great. Great. We still have pockets, man, where they're doing a lot of educating, a lot of great stuff. But, man, we have been overrun with cowardice, and it starts at the very top. We have been overrun with fucking cowardice in these regions, and we're going to get these motherfuckers voted out, like I said. All right? Sound good? Good. All right, let's talk about the anatomy of a removal. And it's it should be very interesting. Hopefully it is. Um, but... What we had was we had a carrier that called in for FMLA on December 9th, okay? He calls in for FMLA on December 9th, a legitimate request for FMLA, all right? So during the day sometime, he had a party uh, in Atlanta, and so he's like, you know what? I feel well enough to go to this party, so I go to this party in Atlanta, and while I'm there, I get in a fight with my partner. Okay, and it's a knockdown, drag out fight with my partner, and so I get arrested. I get arrested and I'm put in jail. So on the 10th of December, I'm in jail. They take my phone, everything. So if you ever worked at the jail, you can't take jewelry, phones, anything like that into the cell with you. So he can't call work. Works at messaging, where are you at? I don't have my cell phone, can't, can't message you back. So he gets scared. He gets scared for his job, so he calls his mother. And he has his mother call in sick for him. All right? So she calls in to the, uh, the little hotline there and uh, puts in for sick leave. So management, they're trying to find where this dude's at. And so they call the mother, and uh, or the mother calls them, and she's like, hey, he's had a seizure. He's in the hospital. Uh, dealing with this seizure well 
Is there any way you can send us some documentation? So the mother falsifies doctor's notes for her son and sends two forms of documentation into management uh, from a doctor's office that she falsified. Now, this stuff looked pristine. If I was ever going to have something falsified, I'd go to his mother because it looked like a damn doctor's note. It was really good. But uh, so in the meantime, while he's gone, he was gone to the 24th. He was incarcerated till the 24th. From the 10th to the 24th, he was incarcerated, right? So they continue to call in sick, continues to do sick leave. During this, the meantime, management finds out that he is incarcerated, okay? They know that he's not sick. They know that he didn't have a seizure. They know that he's not in the hospital. They know that the doctor's notes are falsified. And so when he gets out, he goes back, and they start questioning him about it. Well, he's like, yeah, I was with a, had a seizure and all this. And they're like, okay, well, they're just playing with him, right? Well, you know you can't drive because under state law, you've had a seizure, you can't drive for so many months. Okay, that's fine. And then they hit him with it. We know that you were incarcerated, right? We know that you're incarcerated. Uh, these doctor's notes, we know that they're falsified. We know that you didn't have a seizure. We know that when you called in, that that you weren't sick when you called in. And so they give him an investigative interview, and in the investigative interview, he's brutally honest. He tells everything that he did. I, I, I was I lied here, I lied here, I lied here, I did this. Okay, so we're guilty. We're guilty of this. So the shop steward does a great job. I tell y'all to write notes about the informal step A meeting. So the shop steward does an incredible job at the informal step A meeting of writing notes. One of those was that the discipline did not have concurrence. The request for appropriate action did not have concurrence on it. He also talks about the, the contractual language asked about in the investigative interview and then the contractual language cited in the notice of removal. You know, we've talked about that. He talks about... There's part of the investigative interview that was not right, that was falsified. There was a little caveat at the end where they said they showed some text messages and the shop steward said, hey, these text messages were never addressed in the investigative interview. They were never brought up in the investigative interview. So he writes that in his notes, does a very good job and was a very good witness. Okay. JB gets a hold of it and dude does a master class on how to defeat discipline. Anything and everything you can think of, we address. We address the 1610. We address the 168. He addresses the charge. Remember when I talked about the charge, the episode about the charge? He addresses the charge, how you cannot support the charge because what you said he did, he did not do. And it's that thing of I'm guilty, I'm just not guilty of that. And that was JB's position. Hey, we're guilty as hell. But we're not guilty of that, of the charge. JB does a fantastic job of that. 1610, uh, when they go in, he's at the formal A meeting. He presents his contentions to management at the formal step A meeting. Management brings the same request for appropriate action, unsigned. And so during that meeting, the formal step A for management says, hey, let's make a joint phone call to the concurring to the requesting official and see where is, because I know that it was signed. They're making this up. They're lying. I know it was signed. I don't know why he didn't, you know, why you didn't get it. 
And JB's like, well, you got the same one. <laughs> Yours is unsigned. Well, let me, let's call her and let's see. So they make a joint phone call. As soon as the lady answers the phone, management's formal step A picks up the phone and walks out of the room. And about 10 minutes later, comes back and said, hey, I've got the signed copy coming. <laughs> JB's like, hell, I'm sure you do. So he writes a very good contention about how shady that was. Okay. Uh, he talks about the investigative interview, how it must be thorough and objective, that once you falsified that investigative interview, is no longer objective. Uh, we talk about uh, accusatory questions in the II, and all these things are critical, right? And we talk about some falsification, looks like some falsification of some dates, uh, on some things, uh, we talk about that. Um, and so in the hearing, we get management, everybody's lying on each other. And specifically this supervisor, she's lying about everything. Uh, anything she can lie about, she's lying. And I'm baiting her the entire time, knowing that she's wanting to lie. So I'm just setting traps for her, and she fell in every single one of them, okay? Uh, so the hearing went really well. It was a, the removal is a loser. It's the ultimate loser because we were guilty of sin. But when I talk about all the things that you need to do, when you get disciplined, look at dates, look at names, look at questions, look at investigations, look at every single thing. I always say that that's what happened here because we're trying to do anything and everything to get this young man his job. At. Like I said, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you have done. If you were caught selling 800 pounds of cocaine, I don't care. I'm going to try to get you your job back as best I can. That's just how I am. People may not like that. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do what I can for the city letter care. Why? Because I hate motherfucking management that much. And I love the care that much. I love the city letter care that much. You're like my blood. And I would fight for my brother the same way, right? I'd fight for my sister the same way. Well, you are my brother and my sister. We're going to fight it out in there. <laughs> I don't care what you've done. In my closing, you will hear something that I've said before in one of these episodes about throwing the mail off the bridge. <laughs> You'll hear that in my closing when I, when I play it. Um, but we, you know, we got down in there. Management was very confident going in and I don't blame them. It was a hell of a case, a hell of a case to try to convince this arbitrator. You will see, I'm going to read the decision in its entirety, okay? I'm going to play my closing, and then I'm going to read the, the discussion again, okay? So I'm going to read the decision in its entirety, listen to the discussion part, and then listen to my closing and see what did the arbitrator hang on to and what did he dismiss. Some of the things he dismissed infuriated me. Infuriated me some of the things that he dismissed that he, that he gave management credence to because we knew that they were lying. But he gave them credence to it. It infuriated me. But listen to what he hang on to uh, as far as my closing. And uh, the closing is about 26 minutes Uh uh, Cole Billups, I sent it to him. He took out the names. So you, when I say supervisor, it'll just be a little pause because he took out the names. I didn't want the names. They'll be in the decision, but I wasn't going to do that on a podcast, okay? So very difficult removal. 
but like I said, the informal did a fantastic job of writing good notes. He did a great job of reading the, uh, everything that was sent to him, addressing those in the informal step a meeting, write great notes about it. Certain things were unrebutted. Uh, JB, uh, of course, did a master class on how to defeat discipline. Anything that you could think of, it came out. Every single, th- there was no stone left unturned. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, management was okay. Uh, their witnesses continued to lie on each other. They lied about everything that you could lie about, they lied about. And that's another thing that pissed me off. Because to me, if you're going to remove me for lying, you should remove discipline on me if management is caught lying. That's just how I feel. But that didn't happen uh, like, it, like I thought it should. So let me read this decision. I'm going to read it from front to back. Okay, you know how I feel about that. Uh, I'm going to read the decision, like I said, in its entirety. I'm going to play my closing. You'll listen to me do an actual closing. Like I said, labor always records everything because that's how they do their training. Uh, they have a lot of people come in there and sit and uh, train like that. We don't do that for some reason. I think it's silly. We need to have anybody and everybody in there. That's why when I become business agent, I'm going to have a sign-up sheet. If you want to be a TA, sign up, and I'll get you into a hearing. I think everybody should sit in a hearing. Every shop steward should sit in a hearing so that you can see the importance of the case file. You can see the importance of information, of documentation. You can see the importance of arguments made. You can see how management does. You can see how the arbitrator does. I think that it would be vital and critical for everybody to sit in an arbitration. And when I become business agent, that'll happen. I'll have people go in there as TAs that can sit in there and watch and learn. Okay, because it's all about learning. All right. So here's the decision. And it says the agency, this is the award. The agency did not have just cause to issue the grievance a notice of removal. The removal action is reduced to a long-term suspension without back pay but with no loss in seniority. The grievance will be returned to duty as soon as administratively possible. Okay, so he brought him back with a long-term suspension, and he dinged him for some, for some about seven months of pay, which I did not like. I did not like, but it says procedural matters. This matter came for hearing pursuant to a 2019-23 national agreement between the parties. The hearing occurred on 8th of August, 2023, in a conference room at the Postal Facility located at 525 Royal Parkway, Nashville, Tennessee. Paul Honert, Labor Relations Specialist, represented the United States Postal Service. Corey Walton, National Assigned Assistant, represented the National Association of Letter Carriers. The hearing proceeded in an orderly manner. There was a full opportunity for parties to submit evidence, to examine and cross-examine witnesses, and to argue the matter. All witnesses testified under oath as administered by the arbitrator. The advocates displayed superb professionalism and fully and fairly represented to their respective parties. The issue. Did management violate Article 16 and Sections 115 of the M39 Handbook via Article 19 of the National Agreement when they issued letter care Tyler Jones a notice of removal on January 27th, 2023 for improper conduct. If so, what is the appropriate remedy? Tyler Jones, hereafter known as the grievant, was absent from 9 of December 2022 through 30th of December 2022. On 9th of November, the grievant called into the interactive voice response IVR system for that day requesting leave related to a serious health condition covered by the FMLA and Medical Leave Act, FMLA. 
The grievance mother called into the IVR on subsequent days claiming the grievance was hospitalized following a seizure and provided medical documentation to support that claim. In reality, the grievance had been arrested in Atlanta, Georgia for an altercation and was held in custody between the 9th of December until 24th of December 2022. The Postal Service inputted the grievance leave type as Family and Medical Leave Act Leave Without Pay FMLA leave without pay for 10th of December 2022 through 30th of December 2022. On or about 19th of December 2022, local management was made aware from information provided by the Postal Inspection Service that the grievance was incarcerated in Atlanta. During this time frame, the grievance never divulged to local management that he had not been ill but instead had been in jail. Upon the grievance return to work, he was informed that Tennessee state law prohibited his return to driving duties because of his reported seizures until he received and provided medical clearance. It was at this time the grievance admitted that he had not been incapacitated by a seizure, as claimed. On 7th of January 2023, the grievance was summoned to an investigative interview and was confronted with Postal Service's knowledge of his incarceration. At that point, the grievance was completely forthcoming and admitted that he had misled the Postal Service about the nature of his absence because he was embarrassed by his actions and arrest. On 27th of January, the grievance was issued a notice of removal charging improper conduct. The notice of removal was timely grieved and made its way through the grievance process and ultimately appealed to arbitration. He's got contract provisions, and I'm going to read those to you, okay? Position of the agency. So here's the Postal Service's position. The agency's argument is very simple and straightforward. The grievant lied. The grievant lied about his physical condition. He lied about medical documentation submitted concerning his health condition with the intent to deceive. And he conspired with his mother to supply fraudulent medical documents and to conceal his real whereabouts during his absence. Why? Because he was in jail, under arrest in Atlanta, Georgia. There is absolutely no dispute that the grievance lied and attempted to defraud the Postal Service in order to obtain a benefit that he was not entitled to receive. The union and the grievance have admitted to the lie. The Employer and Labor Relations Manual, ELM Section 665.16, states explicitly that employees are expected to be honest, reliable, trustworthy, and of good character and reputation. Lying, being deceitful and dishonest are inconsistent with those expectations. I'm going to stop right there. Now, you got all this falsified hip training going on right here. We got business agents too fucking cowardly to do something about it. We got a national president won't even say falsified on a damn podcast. And you got these motherfuckers here that say this. Employees are expected to be honest, reliable, trustworthy, and of good character and reputation. Lying, being deceitful, and dishonest are inconsistent with those expectations, and we get fired for it, and we got our own fucking union won't hold management accountable for a fucking thing when they falsify all this hip training. Tell them, hey, just do the training. Please, just do the training within 30 days. We got a national president that still won't say falsified to fucking training, and we got people being fired. First occurrence for falsifying something. Y'all see what I'm talking about? How we need new, a new regime? We need a regime that goes after them as hard as they go after us. We don't have that. We will, though. We will. Sorry about that. Here we go. We're going to continue on. The union has argued that this is all a big misunderstanding, and the grievance merely made a mistake. 
The union tries to portray that the grievance action is just a silly goof of poor judgment that can be brushed aside as a youthful indiscretion, no harm, no foul. However, that is far from the truth of the matter. The grievant intentionally tried to mislead management into thinking he was seriously ill. An illness the grievant knew all too well was a lie because the truth was that he was in jail. The grievant, upon his return to work, attempted to conceal the truth and continued to perpetuate his fraud. It was only after he became aware that management already knew of his deception that he admitted his lies and attempts to hoodwink the agency into receiving benefits for which he was not entitled. The Postal Service functions based on the trust it has with its employees. <laughs> what a crock of shit these motherfuckers are. Sorry. The Postal Service functions based on the trust it has with its employees. When an employee intentionally lies to mislead the employer, that trust is irrevocably broken. Hmm. The double standard. Goes on. The Postal Service is obliged to meet the just cause test when we issue discipline as outlined by the parties. And we have met the test clearly through the evidence and testimony. We ask that this grievance be denied in its entirety. And here's the position of the union. On 23rd of January, 2023, management issued Mr. Jones a removal, charging him with improper conduct. Mr. Jones was incarcerated in Atlanta jail from 10th of December to 24th of December. Mr. Jones, instead of informing his manager that he was incarcerated, chose to be dishonest and say that he was being hospitalized for a seizure. Mr. Jones had his mother turn in falsified medical documentation to support his claim of being hospitalized. In his investigative interview, Mr. Jones was brutally honest about what he did and why he did it. On page 43 of the case file is the notice of removal, and it reads in relevant part as follows. Specifically, between December 9, 2022 and December 30, 2022, you engaged in a conspiracy to deceive postal officials and to obtain an undue benefit, namely protection under the Family Medical Leave Act, FMLA. By requesting FMLA under false pretenses, you attempted to gain protections to which you were not entitled. Your conduct is a serious violation of postal standards and cannot be tolerated. The union asked each management witness to prove his charge through documentation contained in the case file. Each management witness was unable to do so because it is blatantly false. What the union demonstrated is that it was management who inputted Mr. Jones for FMLA leave during his incarceration against his knowledge and then removed him for their actions. In the case there, arbitrator William Renfro opined the following. It has been said that the real heart of procedural due process is not even a question of the employee's guilt or innocence. It is how the company goes about arriving at its decision. When the decision is to impose a penalty as severe as discharge, care must be taken that all relevant facts and evidence are considered. Discharge without a complete investigation or without affording the employee an opportunity to be heard falls short of the minimum standards. The reasons why due process requires that an investigation be made into all relevant facts and circumstances, including the employee's explanation before disciplinary action is taken, are several. If this is not done, the employer risks non-disclosure of essential elements of the case. A thorough investigation reduces the likelihood of impulsive and arbitrary decisions by management and permits deliberate, informed judgment to prevail. By giving the grievance an opportunity to present his side of the story and point out mitigating factors 
raises the possibility that the employer would have been dissuaded from discharging him in the first place. The same evidence presented prior to decision may have a more important effect than when offered at the grievance level. This is so simply because it is human nature to stick to and defend a decision already made. This reluctance to reconsider even the light of a new information is more pronounced in labor management relations because the employer has an additional institutional interest to stand firm and defend the authority of the supervisory personnel who made the decision to discharge. The union asks at what point does a letter carrier's right to due process end? Does it end after the II? Does it end after the request for action? The union's position is that a letter carrier's right to due process never ends. What the union demonstrates is that management's entire removal process against the grievant has violated his due process rights. The grievant is a 10-year letter carrier with no active discipline on his record. His testimony is clear that he was very forthcoming about his actions. That starting on 9th of December 2020, he was unable to request FMLA leave during the period cited his removal because he did not have a cell phone that contained his FMLA number. The union argues that management denied the grievance due process rights when it did not obtain concurrence before it initiated the removal action and when it falsified the II, all of which were unrebutted by management at the informal step A and formal step A meetings. In the case there, Edmund Shedler opined the following. A charge in a disciplinary matter has a similar meaning to an indictment in a criminal matter before a grand jury. Basically, a charge is an accusation in writing that claims that the individual named therein has committed an act or been guilty by omission. And such act or omission was a violation of shop rules or usual good behavior expected of an employee and punishable by discipline. A letter of charges is the foundation of going forward with discipline. And in the absence of a clearly written charge, what is to be the just cause for the discipline? Management will simply not be able to support their charge against the grievance as it is written. It's akin to arresting someone for shoplifting a home stereo system and charging them with grand theft auto. The union argues, therefore, that the charge against the grievance cannot stand and asks that this grievance be sustained in its entirety and grant the union's requested remedy, which is as follows. And I'm not going to read all that to you. So here's this discussion, okay? So I'm going to read this discussion. I'm going to play my closing, my closing argument. I'm going to play for you. And then I'm going to come back and read the discussion again. I'm going to read this discussion, listen to it. When I play the closing, listen to see what the arbitrator hung on to out of everything we threw at him, okay? Because we threw a bunch at him. So listen to this discussion. I'm going to play the closing and read this again and see what he hung on to, all right? At the outset, let me state clearly that the type of undisputed dishonesty exhibited by the grievant in this matter is completely unacceptable and inconsistent with the reasonable rules and expectations of the Postal Service that cannot be swept away, notwithstanding the grievance's full and complete confession when confronted. It is not lost on this arbitrator that the grievant withheld the truth and did not offer his full and complete confession until he was presented with a clear understanding that his deliberate attempt to deceive the Postal Service had already been uncovered by management. I believe it was Sir Walter Scott who said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Such is the case here. The union proffered that the agreement is a 10-year employee that has no active discipline in his personal file. Undoubtedly, this offering is meant to imply that notwithstanding the seriousness of the agreement's behavior, removal is too harsh a penalty. While progressive discipline is the norm, that is not always this case. 
Arbitrator August found that the seriousness of his employee's act may warrant discipline, if not removal, for a first offense, quoting arbitrator Dorshaw in a case dealing with fraudulent submission of medical documentation. There can be little doubt that the submission of a false medical document with intent to deceive management into believing it is true is not honesty. But even in the absence of a published standards of conduct such as that set further in the ELM, a lack of honesty in the employment settling justifies removal even for a first offender and even if it's committed by a long-term employee. That dishonest acts rise to a level of discipline that does not require progression and can very well result in removal on the first offense. The actions of the grievance in the instant case has broken the trust of his employer. When an employer can no longer trust an employee, the employment relationship is most often terminated. In this case, management determined that was their only option. I'm in full agreement with both arbitrators August and Dorshaw that this type of dishonesty rises to a level of discipline this does not require progression and can very well result in removal on the first offense because of the damage that dishonesty does to the trust the employer needs in the given employee that is the bedrock of the employee-employee relationship. The union raised several arguments of defenses in the grievance. Frankly, some have merit, but others do not. First, the union argued that the grievance was denied due process because there was no review and concurrence of the proposed disciplinary action by higher authority, therefore, it was fatally flawed, as was the notice of removal by extension. The basis for this argument was that when the reunion requested all the materials relied upon for the notice of removal, the request for appropriate action, the proposed discipline supplied to the union, did not have a concurring signature. The agency at Formal Step A did provide a signed concurrence page when this argument was raised. The union posited that when management's formal Step A designee stepped out of the Formal A meeting to make a phone call requesting the signed page, this was clear evidence of duplicity. While I understand the union's suspicion, the fact remains that an RFA document with signed concurrence was in the case file. Unrebutted testimony from manager of customer service operations Hall indicated that he was presented with the RFAA, he did review and concur with his findings and that he signed and dated the RFA on 11th of January, 2023. <laughs> Absent definitive evidence from the union that MCSL Hall was somehow lying, the RFAA with concurring signature and date exists and was in that joint case file. Additionally, the JCAM provides very clear guidance concerning what is required to fulfill the agency's obligation for review and concurrence of proposed discipline in the states in relevant part, and it goes over 16.8. The union took great pains to argue that the absence of a signature on the supplied RFA indicates a failure to properly review and concur. However, the JCAM explanation states that what is required is for the agency to provide the identity of the reviewing and concurring official. I understand this would appear to con contradict the language in National Arbitrator Eichen's award offered regarding the requirements that the review and concurrence must be in writing when it states in relevant part. He cites that. The JCAM introduction states that the narrative explanation of the collective bargaining agreement contained in the JCAM should be considered dispositive of the joint understanding of the parties at the national level. The Eichen Award regarding the requirement that the review and concurrence must be in writing came from an interpretive dispute between the Postal Service and mail handlers that would normally bind all the parties, but the JCAM language indicates the Postal Service and NELC have jointly negotiated a different understanding of what is required. Therefore, I find that the agency did fulfill its review and concurrence obligation prior to the issuance of the notice of removal, and this argument must be dismissed. 
I'll stop there. Under that, we will never win a 16-8 argument with this arbitrator, ever. Because if you can come out of that saying that it was had a substantive review, all management has to do is bring somebody in there and say, just tell them that you reviewed all the documents. I reviewed all the documents. Okay, that's all we need. Complete horseshit. But anyway, <clears throat> the union's second challenge to the proprietor of the notice removal related to the failure of manager Tally, who issued the removal, to perform a thorough investigation that was fair and objective. The union challenge went directly to the just cause obligation in this matter. The questions and responses from the grievance were in the case file and testimonies provided related to some of these questions. The just cause test regarding a thorough investigation as defined in the JCAM states in relevant part. He talks about the uh, just cause provision about was the thorough investigation completed. Testimony indicated that the II was the grievance day in court. In my considered opinion, the series of questions asked were constructed to elicit a predetermined response or outcome. And he's talking about accusatory and leading questions. And that's what we caught him with was accusatory and leading questions. To reiterate, it is my determination that the grievance actions designed to deceive were unacceptable and inconsistent with the reasonable expectations of employee behavior. However, the II must still be executed objectively. Objective, defined as an adjective, means not influenced by personal feelings or opinions. Tally's testimony indicated she foreknew the grievance had been incarcerated and was not hospitalized, yet I find the construction of her questions to be less than objective. For example, number 11, not only was it not true that you had a seizure, but you also are claiming FMLA protection for these absences, correct? 12. So you are falsely claiming a serious medical condition, and then you attempted to seek FMLA protection for those false claims. These questions are loaded and accusatory and similar to the old entrapment question, so are you still beating your wife? An affirmative answer is confession, and, as a, and a denial is construed as a confession of past behavior. Regardless, the construction of these questions, in my opinion, raises serious concerns about the objectivity of the investigation. Additionally, Tally testified that she showed and asked agreement about a number of text messages and their meaning during the II, but shop steward Crosby testified emphatically that Tally at no time presented text messages to the agreement during the II. The union argued that in, even though the screenshots of these texts were included in the case file, they were added after the II had been conducted. Manager Tally testified that these text messages were part of her investigative process and were considered in determining whether discipline would have been issued to the grievance. Since the screenshots of these text messages were in the case file, I'd be inclined to accept that they are part of the II process, except for other testimony that causes me to question the accuracy of Tally's claim. Returning to the question of who signed and dated the concurrence of the notice removal document, MCSO Hall affirmed clearly that he did sign the notice removal document, but that the date on the notice removal document next to his signature was not his entry. MCSO Hall's signature and on the RFAA and notice of removal appeared to be quite similar, but the dates on the two documents next to Hall's name are unmistakably dissimilar. On cross-examination, Tally was asked if she had dated the notice removal next to Hall's signature, and she denied dating the notice removal document next to Hall's name. I am admittedly not a handwriting expert and would never claim to be. However, the date written next to Miss Tally's signature 
and the written date next to Mr. Hall's signature on the notice removal document are def definitely very similar. Taken together, these two apparent inconsistencies in recollection gives me pause when weighing the accuracy in all of Tally's testimony. As such, I'm not fully convinced the II constituted a thorough investigation that was fair and objective. I can understand the agency's position that it believed the grievance actions went beyond the pale, but as reprehensible as the grievance deliberate deceptions were, a thorough, fair, and objective investigation is required and may have shed a different light on the situation, although that will never be fully known. In my opinion, the decision to remove the grievance was a foregone conclusion, and the II was merely the purpose of jumping through the hoops in confirmation of this prior determination. The union raised the defense that improper past elements of discipline were cited inconsistent with the JCAM provisions of Article 16.2, which states in relevant part, and he gives that language, However, I cannot find any past elements cited in the notice removal document. It was raised in testimony that the RFA cites a past letter of warning that had been reduced into official discussion, but neither the letter of warning or official discussion were cited as past elements on the notice removal document itself. As such, I'm not persuaded that the listing of the official job discussion on the RFA constitutes a violation of Article 16.2, rendering the notice removal fatally flawed. Next, the notice removal document states in the next to the last sentence of the first charging paragraph, by requesting FMLA under false pretenses, you attempted to gain protection to which you are not entitled. There was significant testimony about PS Form 3971, request for a notification of absence. A supervisor's obligation under FMLA, what the notations were on the Form 3971s in the case file, who filled them out, and who requested what. To be clear, the grievant by his statement and testimony requested eight hours FMLA leave without pay for December 9th because he was not feeling well and used his correct FMLA case number. To the best of my understanding, based on evidence and testimony, it is unrebutted that the grievant had a valid FMLA case number on December 9th and unrebutted that he was not feeling well on that day. It is also unrebutted that on the evening of 9th of December or early morning on December 10th after driving to Atlanta, the agreement was arrested for a physical altercation and was in custody until 24th of December. Testimony from Manager Talley indicated that when he, she received information from the grievance mother that the agreement was hospitalized for a seizure, she followed FMLA protocol and input the agreement for FMLA leave on PS Form 3971. It was unrebutted that several other supervisors likewise put the grievance in for FMLA leave on subsequent PS Form 3971, and these 3971s were in the case file. In my opinion, these managers were acting correctly when they inputted the grievance with FMLA protection based on what they understandably believed to be true. While the grievance was fully willing to accept the largesse of his ruse and let the Postal Service act on his deception, he did not request FMLA protection for these dates. Were his actions calculating and dishonest? Without question. However, the fact remains that he did not actually request the FMLA leave himself, nor did he sign a fraudulent Form 3971. Therefore, I cannot find that the grievance acted specifically as charged in the above cited sentence. Lastly, when the agency is considering whether to charge an employee for some sort of misconduct, as is the case here, it is free to charge what it will, but then it must prove what it charges. The first and second question in the just cause test are, is there a rule and is the rule a reasonable rule? 
In the case before me, the agency charged the agreement with multiple infractions of the ELM and Code of Federal Regulations. Specifically, the agent listed in the notice of removal the charge of the agreement violated the following. And then he lists those there. I would note that the 5 CFR 2635 cited in Elm 662.1 is over 100 pages in length and covers everything receipt of gifts to conflicting financial interest to misuse of government property to participation in professional organizations. 5 CFR 7001 is a supplement to 5 CFR 2635. Addressing restrictions on outside employment and business activities and the statutory prohibition against interest in contracts to carry mail and acting as an agent for contractors. Lastly, 39 CFR 447 Rules of Conduct for Postal Employees addresses everything from prohibited conduct to post-employment activities to political activities to holding of state or local office by Postal Service employees to bribery, undue influence, or coercion. In my considered opinion, the agency did not demonstrate the agreement had been disloyal to the U.S. government, ELM 66511, nor that he failed to discharge his assigned duties, ELM 66513. There was also no evidence or testimony that the agreement failed to obey the instructions of his supervisor, ELM 665.12. And during the II, the agreement was forthcoming with the truth and admitted his wrongdoing and was cooperative, ELM 665.3. The Postal Service could have very well drafted a notice of removing you far less overreach that could have easily been demonstrated and proven, but it did not. In my considered opinion, the precision used when crafting a removal document is as important as ensuring an affirmative response to each of the just cause questions. The agency must prove what it charges. And that's where we put 90% of our time. Uh, in the hearing, management's formal step A was talking about his contentions. And I took him specifically to these criminal statutes. And remember, I had a, an entire episode on criminal statutes. And I took him to the criminal statutes, and I said, I want you to talk to the arbitrator about these criminal statutes. What are you saying? Of course, he has no idea, because he don't do a, deal with criminal statutes. And I said, well, is he guilty of this criminal statute? Well, I don't know. That's what... You cited your contentions. So is he guilty? What did you put it in your contentions for? He said, well, he's guilty of E and F. And I said, so he was guilty of alcohol and drug possession. Because that's F. Alcohol and drug possession. He's guilty of that. He's flipping through this big-ass file. So I went through what criminal statutes are with him. It's something passed by Congress. The president signs those things, and that becomes law. I said, so you're saying that he violated the law? Because if you're saying he violated the law, what does ALM 665 say? Conviction of a statute may result in removal or disciplinary action. A conviction of that. So I took him to the, OIG, the postal inspector's email where they said they did not investigate this. So I said, how is it that you're stating that he is guilty of this criminal statute, yet the Postal Inspection Service, the federal agents, did not investigate, therefore did not convict. How is he guilty of that? This is what the arbitrator is talking about right here. That's what he's talking about. You cited, you cited criminal statutes against somebody. You can't do that. You can't do that. And that's what he says here. 
In my considered opinion, the precision used when crafting a removal document is as important as ensuring an affirmative response to each of the just cause questions. The agency must prove what it charges. When I talk about the charge, the importance of the charge, back, way back in the very beginning of my episodes, the importance of the charge, proving the charge, what is written on the charge must be accurate. Remember all those things? That's what we're drawing out in arbitration to try to save this man's job. Since the issue of the discipline questions whether the agency had just cause to issue the notice removal, then just cause is the standard. As I have found previously, and that's a site that I turned in that he had, even though a cited rule in a disciplinary action may be reasonable, if it does not apply to the grievance actions, then the cited rule is not reasonable. And the discipline fails to meet the second element of the just cause test. Therefore, based on the totality of the testimony and evidence presented, I cannot find that the agency has met its burden to remove the grievance from employment for his obvious misdeeds and dishonesty. To paraphrase arbitrator Winter, and that's another site that I put in there, the employer may object that this is a technicality and, the, and in truth it is. However, the proper citation and proof of charges is as much a part of the collective bargaining agreement as the right to remove. The arbitrator may not sidestep it because he worries that the merits might have validity as to the issuing of the discipline. I am as bound by the contract as the parties. My personal likes, dislikes, or feelings cannot permit me to evade the responsibility to uphold the agreement. And then he addresses the agreement in that, okay? So you heard his discussion, all of the things that he shot down on us, um, everything that was raised. Uh, some I don't agree with. Obviously, some I do. Um, but... What I'm going to do now is play my closing argument, okay? And you'll hear the things that I touched on. The contractual language, uh, the charge, 1610, 16.8, the uh, investigative interview, the dishonesty of management. Uh, I cover all these things in my closing, okay? So I'm going to play my closing. You heard the discussion. I'm going to play my closing. I'm going to read the discussion again at the end of it. I'm going to try to do a better job. My mouth is dry. I'm drinking some tea here, but uh, I'm going to play it and then I'm going to come back and read the discussion again and you can see clearly what he hung on to, what he gave weight to, all right, and, uh, and then we'll finish it up, all right, so I'll be right back. Mr. Arbitrator, we're guilty. We're guilty of being incarcerated falsifying medical documentation in an attempt to not let the Postal Service know that we're incarcerated. We're guilty of getting our mother involved with calling in uh, sick when we're not sick. We're guilty of not being truthful to management during that process that we're incarcerated. Uh, we're guilty of that. We've acknowledged that in our informal Step A notes. We've acknowledged that in our formal Step A position. We've acknowledged that in our investigative interview where Mr. was brutally honest about what happened. And we were honest about that today. We are not guilty of what they have charged this man with. There's a difference. In my opening, I talked about if I'm arrested for shoplifting a home stereo system, I'm guilty of that. But if you charge me in court 
of Grand Theft Auto, I'm not guilty of that. You will never be able to support that charge. That's exactly what we're dealing with here today. They had an opportunity to charge this man with falsifying documentation. They could have done that and we would have come in here and settled that. What they chose to do was charge him with this. And this is on page 43. This is the removal. And this is what they must support when they talk about the removal of Mr. Jones. It says, on December 9th, 2022, you called in requesting eight hours of FMLA leave without pay, which is incorrect. It was sick leave. Eight hours. That's the only thing that they can prove. And that was a legitimate request requested by him. Also in the notice removal, it says, by requesting FMLA under false pretenses, you attempted to gain protections to which you are not entitled. That is blatantly false. The documentation that Mr. Leith showed you proved that that is blatantly false. There's no 3971 for Mr. Jones. I don't care what a text message says. The official document that we use to request leave, matter of fact, the 3971 states what? Requesting leave. That's what it states. That's how we request leave. All of this stuff that they want to talk about outside of that is something that they're attempting to use because they don't have the documentation to support this charge. This man never requested FMLA under false pretenses. He testified, I didn't have my phone. I didn't know the number to request FMLA coverage. My mother didn't know the number to request FMLA coverage. And I don't care about this story that they keep telling about it's a serious medical condition. We're obligated to put you under FMLA. So when you're called in with a serious medical condition, that's not what this states. That's not what this states right here. It says, by requesting FMLA. So they're saying that he requested FMLA. Yet they can't prove that he did that. They input him FMLA and then fired him for what they did. They cannot support this charge on page 55 of the case file. It's his day in court. That's what the investigative interview is. It's his day to tell his story, regardless of what happened beforehand. His day in court, he stated this on number 11. Not only was it not true that you had a seizure, but you also were claiming the FMLA protections for these absences, correct? Which is an accusatory and leading question, but... I was not able to get my FMLA number. I was incarcerated. None of this was FMLA. I couldn't remember my number, and my mother didn't know. How is it that he requested FMLA after that? Did they show any documentation where this gentleman requested FMLA after the 9th of December? That's what they have to, that's their burden. That's what they have to prove. That's how they prove this charge, by requesting FMLA. They have to prove that he requested FMLA, not something that they made up saying, well, since it was the 9th, we just took for granted that the 10th was also FMLA covered. That's not how this works. It says here on December 9th, you called in requesting eight hours. So anything after eight hours, he would have to request to support this charge. On number 12, so you were falsely claiming a serious medical condition and you attempted to seek FMLA protections for those false claims. Did you hear that question? Because this, their entire position was, well, under this B-team decision, they cite this M document that says that these are the serious conditions. So when he called in 
It said he had a seizure. We were obligated to put him under FMLA. Listen to this question. So you were falsely claiming a serious medical condition, and then you attempted to seek FMLA protections for those false claims. That's blatantly false. If you want to say, so you're falsely claiming a serious medical condition, so we input you for FMLA, okay, we can deal with that. Because that's what you did. You put him in for FMLA. But when you say you're falsely claiming a serious medical condition, and then you attempted to seek FMLA protections for those false claims, where does it state that in anywhere in this, in this case file? What documentation do they have stating that in this case file? He showed you every report that they have where they put Mr. in for FMLA. How is it that he attempted to seek FMLA protections? Where is it that he attempted to do that? They want to talk about a text message? I'll get to that in a second. On page 72, they want to talk about the text. He testified that when he got out, he got into light blue and saw that they had coded him for FMLA. And so he reached out to him and he says, hey, you're saying this is FMLA protected. This number you had me for, 99, not my number that you put me in for. I, I don't, that's not my FMLA number that you have me input for FMLA. You're saying that this is FMLA protected because in light blue, he sees that they put him from FMLA. He says back, this is my number. This is my case number, not this number. But then he says, hey, I never provided you for use from my FMLA. So regardless of what you got in there, I never provided you use from my FMLA. He's maintained that from the very beginning. In his day in court, he maintains that. And they still want to come in here and say, by some degree, he said this should be FMLA covered. At no point has he said this should be FMLA covered. They have fabricated a story on him to remove him from his livelihood. They cannot support this charge. When you talk about the charge, Arbitrator Wallace is a very simple sentence. It's one of my favorites, though. On page 13, this is what she states. What is in that notice must be true and correct if the removal is to be for just cause. That's all she says. What is in that notice must be true and correct if the removal is to be for just cause. How can that be for just cause when it's blatantly false? How can that be for just cause? He did not do that. And they want him removed for something he didn't do. Arbitrator Sims, I put in my, my uh, sites one of yours. I didn't highlight it because you wrote it. But you talk about the importance of the charge and how the charge must be accurate. This charge is not accurate because what they're saying he did, he did not do. Let me ask this. At what point does Mr. right to due process end? And J.B. made a great contention about that. At what point does my right to due process end as a letter carrier? Does it end when you, sit, when you find that I falsified documents? Does my right to due process end there? Does my right to due process end after my day in court? Does my right to due process end when after the request for appropriate action? My right to due process never ends. I will carry that right with me all the way through your decision. Listen to what management did to him. On page 53, here's what we have Mr. Crosby stating on page 53. At no point during the investigative interview, 
Show any printouts of any text messages or ask any questions about any text messages. The notation at the end of her copy of the investigative interview never took place. Now he brought that forward through the formal step A and it was never rebutted by Thomas. They never reached out to Mr. The only time they reached out to Mr. is they intentionally called a known perjurer back in here to testify to that statement. Somebody that they know for a fact perjured herself right there. They knew that when they went and got her. That we're fixing to bring a known perjurer in here to testify. Why would I need to ask anybody anything? Why would I need to ask him anything? She perjured herself in front of you and they brought her back in to testify to rebut that statement. I'll let that fall where it is. Uh, you want to talk about dishonesty? That witness right there, I needed to, to ask her for her driver's license to see if that was even her name. As many times as she was dishonest. Listen to what she did today. Just today. Asked her if she, uh, about the concurrence and what did she say? Under oath, I handed Mr. a signed copy of the concurrence at the informal step A meeting. And I said, hold up just a second. What would you just say? Yeah, I gave him a signed copy of the concurrence at the, at the informal step A meeting. That's what she said under oath. If she would have handed him that, he would have put that in the file. She was untruthful then. I asked her about the notice of removal, about the dates on the notice of removal. Is that Mr. Date there? Yes. So that's not your that's not your writing right there. No, that's not my writing. They brought the known perjurer back in to testify to that. She falsified his investigative interview, his day in court. She falsified that. Think about that for a second. Here's, here's his day in court where he gets an opportunity to tell his story. And he is brutally honest in his day in court. Brutally honest. And what does she do? Falsifies his day in court. Mr. Leach said it perfectly. In that investigative interview, when you're talking about just cause principles, was a thorough investigation completed. You have two criteria in that investigative interview that you must do. When it talks about in 16.1, the last sentence, these are the things that the supervisor must do. It doesn't say should do or, or might do or we would like for you to. It says these are the things they must do. They must perform a thorough investigation. And the two criteria that are it must be thorough and objective. When you interject things in an investigative interview that were never asked about and never answered, you nullify the entire investigative interview process because you have tried to steer that in a way that you wanted it to, the outcome to be. That's what happens when you choose to falsify an individual's day in court. The most important day a letter carrier will have in the issuance of dissolute is my day in court. And you falsified that for what reason? Because you wanted to sway whoever was looking at that a certain way. You want to make sure of guilt. So now we have an alleged concurrence based off a falsified investigative interview. How is that not a violation of Mr. due process rights? 
How is that not saying that that is no longer objective? One of the two criteria that it must be. How is that not violent of, of this man's due process who went into the investigative interview and was brutally honest? And what was he met with? One of the more dishonest people I've seen falsifying his day in court. On page 60, number three, this is the request, uh, this is the request for appropriate action. And this is what she states. Employee admitted everything during the investigative interview. So yeah, truthful, this is on page 60, number three. He admitted that he lied. He admitted that he provided fabricated documentation. And he admitted to being in jail by claiming to be uh, in the hospital. Then she goes on, the employee has been deceitful during the entire process, <laughs> even though she just admitted that he was brutally honest. Here you have somebody saying that this man was deceitful, yet she was the one who chose during his day in court to do something that's absolutely reprehensible and unforgivable. And then they brought this perjurer in here to rebut that position. Somebody that they know for a fact was, has perjured herself. And they go and choose that individual to come in here and testify to that. I get it. You want to win at all costs. That is inexcusable. That's inexcusable. Page 41 is Mr. Curry's notes. No higher level concurrence. And I know that you have a position on that. No higher level concurrence. Handed that to her and talked about that. She didn't produce anything, didn't say anything. Then he talks about the statutes or the provisions that are in the notice of removal. And he says, look, here's the problem. In the investigative interview, my day in court, the opportunity to, for me to answer to the charges being brought against me. In my day in court, you asked me about 66516 and 661.2. And you gave me an opportunity to address those. Now, here's the problem that management has. When you send up something asking for concurrence, and the concurrent official looks at this case file, we still say that it was never concurred on, but for, for the sake of, of what we're arguing here, and you say that I'm going to send this up, and the concurring official looks at all this documentation, and they say, hey, I concur with this. I agree with everything that you stated. All these, the investigator may get all the documentation. I agree with these provisions that you say they violated. And so I'm going to concur on this and it's going to go to labor. Right? That's what's concurred on. Here's the problem. 665.16 and 661.2 were the only two things that were asked about. And here's what the notice of removal claimed. 665.13. 665153, 665.16, 665.16, 662.1, 665.1, 665.11. Let me ask you, how did they end up with all those provisions after the concurrence? That removal action wasn't properly concurred on. She was asked about, he was asked about, 665.16 and 6.12. How did they come up with 10 extra provisions after the concurrence? I didn't concur on that. And if they want to say, well, he signed the notice of removal, when did he sign the notice of removal? When did he sign the notice of removal? 
That date was falsified by Mr. I don't know if he signed it after it was already handed to him and they forgot that, that he didn't sign it and signed it then. I don't know. There's no way of me knowing that. She falsified the notice of removal on the date. So I don't know if he looked at it and said, yeah, I agree with all those extra provisions or not. When we talk about when is my right to due process in, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. I told you I'm guilty. Why do you have to do all this other stuff? Why do you have to do that to him? Hey, we turn in falsified documentation. Let me have my day in court and see what the arbitrator says. You do all this extra stuff to do, to do what? To prove more guilt? You violated this man's due process the entire way through this thing. I'm going to talk about concurrence. He gave you a cite about concurrence, so doggone we're going to talk about it. Page 59 is the request for appropriate action, and this is what we go by. This is what we look at, because when we put in an information request, we say we want any and all information that management used to issue this discipline. That's what we want. So we expect for you to give us exactly what we asked for. Any and all information you use to issue this discipline, which means what? You're going to have to cover the, the, the provisions of Article 16, which is what? 16.8 is incorporated in Article 16, and it talks about in no case. That's powerful language, as Mr. Leith said. In no case. That means no matter what this man has done, that's what is covered in no, in no case. If I'm throwing all my mail off a bridge with a crack pipe in my mouth, with 18 pounds of pot in the back of my vehicle, with my vehicle running and the wheels not curved, I'm still covered under in no case. That's still covered in that. And that's what he talked about, in no case. So here we have a man that's admitted to what he did, and this is what we get. This right here. No concurrence. So Mr. raises that issue. JV raises that issue. What does he say? He says, you showed up. You showed up with the exact same one at the formal step A meeting. How is that possible? The exact same one at the formal step A meeting. You bring management brings no concurrence. And so what happens? They have a phone call. Where Mr. Gets up and leaves. Does that not sound shady? It does to me. That sounds shady. That's shady as hell. I'm supposed to have a joint phone call with the formal step A, and he says, let me call. Here she is, and gets up and walks out. And then comes back, he said, today, he didn't talk to Ask him that. No. Talk to Ask him about, what about all this up here? About when he said, she left it up by accident. They sent the file to MCSR, which is not true. She sent it to, so she said. But here, said they sent it to file to last day. Is that true? Yes. Not true. She testified. I, I sent it to. So I said, did you talk to her? Where'd you get all this? I'm just guessing that that's what she said and what she was saying. I'm just speculating. Come on, you know that gun. The man did something wrong. Let's address that and be done with it. But all of this extra stuff here, you're going to hand me something with no concurrence? You're going to bring the same 
the file to the formula with no concurrence, you're going to leave the room where I can't hear you talk and say, hey, I got it coming. This is not the original. He's got the original, and he's going to send it to me. I bet he could. The 1610 argument. I don't know where management continues to say that that has to be on the notice of removal. 1610 doesn't say that. It says in the removal action. That's what 1610 says. The action is from the investigative interview up to the removal itself. It doesn't say notice of removal. It says the removal action. Any of these things are violative of that. And so JB says, hey, how we handle things in the, in the national installation is if you cite discipline that has been expunged and rescinded, we kill that discipline. That's what he said. It says... He stated, it's not on the notice of removal. Nothing in 1610 talks about if it's cited on the notice of removal. I don't know what he's talking about. It clearly says in the discipline action. Uh, and so how they handle things here is, if you cite or consider discipline that's been rescinded, how they do things here in this installation is, we remove the discipline. He's shown you multiple pages of that. And he says, management can't produce one page where that's not the case. How's that not violative of 1610? He's saying, every time this has ever come up, we've killed the discipline. Regardless of whether you cite the discipline. RFA, removal. Regardless of that, anytime you do that, here in Nashville, how we deal with it is we remove that discipline. What's wrong with Mr. Why is he different? And they didn't bring anybody in here to testify anything different to that. He's shown you page after page after page, but that's how it's handled. How's that not violated his due process? In my opening, I had a, uh, an excerpt from Arbitrator Renfro. And this is what it says. It's been said that the real heart of procedural due process is not even a question of employees' guilt or innocence. And that's exactly what we're talking about here today. It is how the company goes about arriving at its decision. Here's how they arrived at their decision. They falsified the investigative interview. They failed to provide concurrence until the formal step A meeting. They put this man in for FMLA and then fired him for what they did to him. That's what happened here. Mr. Arbitrator, that charge cannot stand as written, just as I said in my opening statement. As written, that charge can't stand because they cannot prove that this man did what they said. And that's the verbiage on here. By requesting. There's nothing in this case file showing Mr. Jones requested anything after the night. And if you can't prove that, you can't prove this charge. We're going to ask that you sustain this grievance in its entirety, Mr. Arbitrator. And I gave you my requested remedy in my opening statement. I'm not going to read that to you. But we ask that you do the right thing here and see exactly what happened to this man. And rescind and expunge this removal and bring this man back to work so he can get back to making some money. Thank you, sir. All right, so you heard the, the, my closing arguments, okay? And I thank Cole Billups for doing that. Uh, he edited the names, even though I'm reading them out of this site. But so you heard what I was arguing, okay? Uh, I'm going to read the discussion again. I know it's lengthy, but I'm going to read it again, and that way you can hear what the arbitrator hung on to and what he dismissed, all right? Here's the discussion again, now that you've heard my closing argument. At the outset, let me state clearly that the type of an undisputed dishonesty exhibited by the grievance in this matter is completely unacceptable and inconsistent 
with the reasonable rules and expectations of the postal service that cannot be swept away, notwithstanding the grievance full and complete confession when confronted. It is not lost on this arbitrary that the grievance withheld the truth and did not offer his full and complete confession until he was presented with the clear understanding that his deliberate attempt to deceive the Postal Service had already been uncovered by management. I believe it was Sir Walter Scott who said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Such is the case here. The union proffered that the grievance was a 10-year employee that has no active discipline in his personnel file. Undoubtedly, this offering is meant to imply that, notwithstanding the seriousness of the grievance behavior, removal is too harsh a penalty. While progressive discipline is the norm, that is not always the case. Arbitrator August found that the seriousness of an employee's act may warrant discipline, if not removal, for a first offense. Quoting arbitrator Dorshaw in a case dealing with fraudulent submission of medical documentation, there can be little doubt that the submission of false medical document with intent to deceive management into believing it is true is not honesty. But even in the absence of a published standards of conduct such as that set further in the LM, a lack of honesty in the employment setting justifies removal even for a first offense and it committed by a long-term employee. That dishonest acts rise to a level of discipline that does not require progression and can be very well result in removal of the first offense. The actions of the agreement in the instant case has broken the trust of his employer. When an employer can no longer trust an employee, the employment relationship is most often terminated. In this case, management determined that there was, this was their only option. I'm in full agreement with both arbitrators August and Dorshaw that this type of dishonesty rises to a level of discipline that does not require progression and can very well result in removal of the first offense because of the damage the dishonesty does to the trust the employer needs in the given employee that is the bedrock of the employee-employee relationship. The union raised several arguments of defenses in this grievance. Frankly, some have merit, but others do not. First, the union argued the grievance was denied due process because there was no review and concurrence of the proposed disciplinary action by a higher authority. Therefore, it was fatally flawed as was the notice of removal by extension. The basis for this argument was that when the union requested all the materials relied upon for the notice of removal, the note request for appropriate action, RFAA, the proposed discipline, supplied to the union did, did not have a concurring signature. The agency at Formal Step A did provide a signed concurrence page when this argument was raised. The union posited that when the management's Formal Step A designee stepped out of the Formal Step A meeting to make a phone call requesting a signed page, this was clear evidence of duplicity. While I understand the union's suspicion, the fact remains that an RFA document with signed concurrence was in the case file. Unrebutted testimony from manager of customer service operations, Hall, indicated that he was presented with the RFAA, that he had did review and concur with the findings, and that he signed and dated the RFA on January 11, 2023. Absent definitive evidence from the union that MCSO Hall was somehow lying, the RFA was concurring signature and date exists and was in the joint case file. Additionally, the JCAM provides very clear guidance concerning what is required to fulfill the agency's obligation for a view and concurrence of proposed discipline when it states in relevant part. And he, he cites the 16-8 language. The union took great pains to argue that the absence of a signature on the supplied RFAA indicates a failure to properly review and concur. However, 
The JCAM explanation states that what is required is for the agency to provide the identity of the reviewing and concurring official. I understand this would appear to contradict the language of National Arbitrator Eichen's award offered regarding the requirements that the review and concurrence must be in writing when it states in relevant part and cites that language. The JCAM introduction states that the narrative explanation of the collective bargaining agreement contained in the JCAM should be considered dispositive of the joint understanding of the parties at the national level. The Eichen Award regarding the requirement that the review and concurrence must be in writing came from an interpretive dispute between the Postal Service and the mail handlers that would normally bind all the parties, but the JCAM language indicates the Postal Service and NELC have jointly negotiated a different understanding of what is required. Therefore, I find that the agency did fulfill its review and concurrence obligation prior to the entrance of the notice of removal, and this argument must be dismissed. The union's second challenge to the propriety of the notice of removal related, related to the failure of manager Talley, who issued the removal, to perform a thorough investigation that was fair and objective. This union challenge went directly to the just cause obligation in this matter. The questions and responses from the agreement were in the case file, and testimony was provided related to some of these questions. The just cause test regarding a thorough investigation as defined in the JCAM states in relevant part. He's got that language. Testimony indicates that it, the II was the grievance day in court. In my considered opinion, the series of questions asked were constructed to elicit a predetermined response or outcome. To reiterate, it is my determination that the grievance actions designed to deceive were unacceptable and inconsistent with the reasonable expectations of employee behavior. However, the II must still be executed objectively. Objective, defined as an adjective, means not influenced by personal feelings or opinions. Tally's testimony indicated she foreknew the grievant had been incarcerated and was not hospitalized, yet I find the construction of her question to be less than objective. For example, number 11. Not only was it not true that you had a seizure, but you were also claiming FMLA protection for these absences, correct? 12. So you are falsely claiming a serious medical condition and then you attempted to seek FMLA protections for those false claims. These questions are loaded and accusatory and similar to the old entrapment question, so are you still beating your wife? An affirmative answer is confession and a denial is construed as a confession of past behavior. Regardless, the construction of these questions, in my opinion, raises serious concerns about the objectivity of the investigation. Additionally, Tally testified that she showed the, and asked the agreement about a number of text messages and their meaning during the II, but shop steward Crosby testified emphatically that Tally at no time prevented text messages to the agreement during the II. The union argued even though the screenshots of these texts were included in the case file, they were added after the II had been conducted. Manager Tally testified that these text messages were part of her investigative process and were considered in determining whether discipline would have been issued to the grievant. Since the screenshots of these text messages were in the case file, I'd be inclined to accept that they were part of the II process, except for other testimony that causes me to question the accuracy of Tally's claim. Returning to the question of who signed and dated the concurrence of the notice removal document, MCS Hall affirmed clearly that he did sign the notice removal document but that the date on the notice of removal document next to his signature was not his entry. MCS Hall's signature on the RFAA and notice of removal appear to be quite similar, 
but the dates on the two documents next to Hall's name are unmistakably dissimilar. On cross-examination, Tally was asked if she had dated the notice of removal next to Hall's signature, and she denied dating the notice of removal document next to Hall's name. I'm admittedly not a handwriting expert and would never claim to be. However, the date written next to Miss Tally's signature and the written date next to Mr. Hall's signature on the notice of removal document are definitely very similar. Taken together, these two apparent inconsistencies in recollection gives me pause when weighing the accuracy in all of Tally's testimony. As such, I'm not fully convinced the I.I. constituted a thorough investigation that was fair and objective. I can understand the agency's position that it believed the grievance actions went beyond the pale, but as reprehensible as the grievance deliberate deceptions were, a thorough, fair, and objective investigation is required and may have shed a different light on the situation, although that will never be fully known. In my opinion, the decision to remove the agreement was a foregone conclusion, and the I.I. was merely the purpose of jumping through the hoops in confirmation of the prior determination. The union raised the defense that improper past elements of discipline are cited inconsistent with the JCAM provisions of Article 16.2, which states in relevant part, and he cites that language, However, I cannot find any past elements cited in the notice removal document. It was raised in testimony that the RFAA cites the past letter of warning that had been reduced to an official discussion, but neither the letter of warning or official discussion were cited as past elements on the notice removal document itself. As such, I'm not persuaded that the listing of an official job discussion on the RFAA constitutes a violation of Article 16.2, rendering the notice fatally flawed. Next, the notice removal document states in the next to the last sentence of the first charging paragraph, by requesting FMLA under false pretenses, you attempted to gain protection to which you are not entitled. There was significant testimony about PS Form 3971, request for a notification of absence, a supervisor's obligations under FMLA, what the notations were on the Form 3971s in the case file, who filled them out and who requested what? To be clear, the grievant by his statement and testimony requested eight hours of FMLA leave without pay for December 9th, 2022, because he was not feeling well and used his correct FMLA case number. To the best of my understanding, based on evidence and testimony, it is unrebutted that the grievant had a valid FMLA case number on the 9th of December and unrebutted that he was not feeling well on that day. It is also unrebutted that on the evening of 9th of December, or early morning on December 10th, after driving to Atlanta, the grievance was arrested for a physical altercation and was in custody until the 24th of December. Testimony from Madra Talley indicated that when she received information from the grievance's mother that the grievance was hospitalized for a seizure, she followed FMLA protocol and inputted the grievance for FMLA leave on PS Form 3971. It was unrebutted that several other supervisors likewise put the grievance in for FMLA leave on subsequent PS Form 3971, and these 3971s were in the case file. In my opinion, these managers were acting correctly when they inputted the grievance with FMLA protection based on what they understandably believed to be true. While the grievance was fully willing to accept the largesse of his ruse and let the Postal Service act on his deception, he did not request FMLA protection for these dates. Were his actions calculating and dishonest? Without question. However, the fact remains that he did not actually request the FMLA leave himself, nor did he sign a fraudulent Form 3971. 
Therefore, I cannot find that the grievant acted specifically as charged in the above cited sentence. Lastly, when the agency is considering whether to charge an employee for some sort of misconduct, as is the case here, it is free to charge what it will, but then it must prove what it charges. The first and second questions in the just cause test are, is there a rule and is the rule reasonable rule? In the case before me, the agency charged the agreement with multiple infractions of the ELM and Code of Federal Regulations, CFR. Specifically, the agent listed in its notice of removal charge that the agreement violated the following, 662, 662-1, 665-665.1, 665.11, 665.13, 665.15, 665.16, 665.3. I would note that 5 CFR 2635, cited in Elm 662.1, is over 100 pages in length and covers everything from receipt of gifts to conflicting financial interests to misuse of government property to participation for federal and professional organizations. 5 CFR 7000 was a supplement to 5 CFR 2635. I'll stop there. Do y'all see what he's doing? When you're... Remember in my closing when I said, how did they come up with all these extra provisions that were violated? 662, 662.1. He's saying you can't cite 662.1. It's over 100 pages. He can't violate all of 662.1. So that's what we're talking about in the charge when they cite all these extra provisions. Did they? Did they violate those? And that's what we brought out in the closing. Here's all these extra provisions. Where'd they come from? After concurrence, where did all these extra provisions come from? He's addressing that here, okay? And that's very good for y'all when y'all see these notice of removals where they list all this other shit on there. Get this decision. It's good on there. I hate the concurrence thing. I think that's horseshit, but this is good here on this CFR. In my considered opinion, the agency did not de demonstrate that the agreement had been disloyal to the U.S. government, ELM 665.11, nor that he failed to discharge his assigned duties, ELM 665.13. There was also no evidence or testimony that the agreement failed to obey the instructions of his supervisor, ELM 665.12. And during the II, the agreement was forthcoming with the truth and admitted his wrongdoing and was cooperative, ELM 665.3. The Postal Service could have very well drafted a notice of removal using far less overreach that it could easily been demonstrated and proven, but it did not. In my considered opinion, the precision used in crafting a removal document is as important as ensuring the affirmative response to each of the just cause questions. The agency must prove what it charges. Since the issue in this discipline questions where the agency had just cause to issue notice removal, then the just cause is the standard. As I have found previously, even though a cited rule in a disciplinary action may be reasonable, if it does not apply to the grievance actions, then the cited rule is not reasonable and the discipline fails to meet the second element of the just cause test. Therefore, based on the totality of the testimony and evidence presented, I cannot find that the agency had met its burden to remove the agreement for employment for his obvious misdeeds and dishonesty. To paraphrase arbitrator Winter, the employer may object that this is a technicality, and in truth it is. However, the proper citation and proof of charges is as much a part of the collective bargaining agreement as the right to remove. The arbitrator may not sidestep it because he worries that the merits might have validity as to the issuing of discipline. I am as bound by the contract as the parties. My personal likes, dislikes, or feelings 
cannot permit me to evade the responsibility to uphold the argument. And that's the decision. Okay, so there's you, the anatomy of removal. All right, we got the removal. We started attacking it from the very beginning. A very good job by the informal, uh, picking out certain things, reading everything, bringing those uh, notes up to the formal A. JB did a master class, as I said, on how to address these things, made it very easy for me. I didn't do anything in here, you know, just picked on management a little bit because they want to lie so much. But I let uh, Crosby and JB do their thing, made it very easy on me. The witness was a very good witness for me. He, he was very honest to on both sides. When I questioned him, when management questioned him, he, he did a very good job. And we were able to get this young man his job back. And hopefully he'll have a long career and learn from his mistakes. All right. So that'll show you everything that we've talked about in these prior episodes. We brought everything forward. Every one of the arguments that I've ever taught y'all about from the very beginning, that's how you see it come to fruition right there. Okay. Uh, so I thought y'all would like to hear that. Maybe you didn't. It's a very long episode. Didn't know it was going to take that long, but, uh, Hopefully y'all enjoyed that. We'll do that more often if you like, okay? Uh, order your shirts. Get on there and order your shirts. We're going to give all that money to our brothers and sisters in Hawaii who have lost everything, okay? And uh, we'll be doing that at the end of this month. I challenge the NEOC uh, to get off their ass and, and match the number that we're going to have. The business agents uh, to match the number that we're going to have. And, and let's put some money in their pockets, okay? And help them out as much as we can uh, for food, whatever that they need. I think that'll be a, a great gesture from our brothers and sisters to them. Uh, get on from Aid Arbitration uh, Facebook page. I'm I'm doing that now. Miss <laughs> uh, Lindsay, like I said, taking a hiatus. Um, I'll start putting some shit up for you on that. Okay. <laughs> From aidarbitration.com, get on there. If y'all ever wonder about anything that I talk about on any of these episodes, go to formadearbitration.com, find the episode, and everything you're going to need is on there. Okay? So when you call me or message me, all I'm going to do is go to the episode, find it, and there it is. Okay? So go to formadearbitration.com. Everything you're going to need is on those episodes that I talk about. All right? Discord, get on there. A lot of great stuff on Discord. Uh, I love getting on there and just reading all the stuff going on in there. Uh, it's wild and crazy. Great stuff, though. A lot of great information on there. Reddit, a lot of great information on there. That thing is growing by leaps and bounds. Get on the Reddit page. If you get on from 8arbitration.com, it'll have prompts for you on both of those things. Okay, Discord and Reddit. You can get on from 8arbitration.com, and it'll tell you. It'll have a link to both of those things. All right, so get on there. Have fun on those things. Uh, a lot of great things going on, man. I know that it initially, when I started this today, uh, a lot of bad things, but I'm sick and tired of my people getting run over by us and management, okay? Um, they need to. We need to be uh, a refuge for them, and we need to be their agent. Uh, we need to be that stronghold for them, and we're not. We're not. Uh, but like I said, change is coming. I promise you that. We're no longer going to be lost in the wilderness, okay? Y'all are going to have a place to go. It's going to be your business agent's office. Go to them, and we're going to start handling shit the way we should, okay? And it's going to start with me. And I promise you that that's gonna, how it's going to be on day one, all right? I can stay on here and keep doing this shit 
every week training and, and everything, or I can step onto the battlefield, and that's what I'm going to do. All right. I'm going to continue to do this, though. They will not talk me out of doing this. I'll continue to do this every week, even when I'm a business agent. I'll continue to do this, and I'll tell the entire country what's going on in my region, anything that's happening. Anything that's happening in y'all's regions, I'll tell you what's going on in y'all's region. You know why? Because I don't give a fuck. Uh, I'm here for the city letter carrier. Whether it's California, Maine, New York, whatever, I don't give a shit. I'm here for the city letter carrier to educate y'all and so that every one of y'all are protected, uh, that y'all are stress-free, and y'all are safe. And that's the only thing that matters to me, okay? I got Mr. John Poskins going to be coming up doing an episode shortly. JB's going to be coming up doing an episode shortly. So I don't know what's going to happen next Sunday. College football starts next Saturday. So I'm in heaven when that happens. And um, take care of yourselves, y'all. Take care of yourselves, okay? Uh, Help's coming, though. Help's coming. I promise you that. I love every one of y'all. Every single one of y'all. Whether you like me or not, I love you. I promise you I do. And if you get yourself in trouble, I will be there to help you. I will be there. I'm still answering a lot of emails. I'll get to them. I promise you. A lot of text messages. I'll get to them. I promise you. A lot of Facebook messages. I'll get to them. I promise you. I promise you. All right. Y'all take care of yourselves. I love you dearly. I do. And I'll talk to y'all later. All right. Bye.